we have a, a glorious picture in our text of the difference the gospel makes in a marriage. God has a way in which he wants a home to function. A marriage that commends the gospel. So let me show you where we're going before we get there. We're going to deal first with Christian instruction for the wife, verses 1 through 6. And then Christian instruction for the husband, verse 7. In other words, being a wife God's way, and then being a husband God's way. All of you need this text. If you're married, you need this text because wedlock can become deadlock. G.K. Chesterton said, marriage is an adventure like going to war. <laughs> there can be an endless power struggle in which each person tries to get the upper hand. For some of you, your marriage is not healthy. You're still living under the same roof, but it's two different lives. You have your goals and she has her goals. You have a way you want things done and he has a way he wants things done. A husband and wife can quickly drift apart. I was at the gym last week listening to John Piper talk about how hard marriage was. And he went into detail about some of their marriage struggles. He said, we hadn't had intimacy in four to five weeks. He didn't use the word intimacy. He said sex. We hadn't had sex in four to five weeks. And I'm on the bench press or on some machine and I couldn't get my earbuds out of my ear fast enough. I'm like, stop, John, stop. TMI, <laughs> too much information. I can never unhear this, John. I made a commitment at that moment to never listen to John Piper at the gym again. He went on to say, I didn't want to look at her. And she didn't want to look at me. I didn't want to touch her. And she didn't want to touch me. I knew it was bad. We were by the bed and I said, pray with me. I knelt and then she knelt. And I prayed, God help. That's all he could get out. That's it. He said we both got into bed with our backs turned to one another. For the rest of the night. That is exactly why you need this text. And this text isn't just for married couples, it's also for single adults. If you're a single adult, this is why you need this text. It's important who you marry. You need to know what to look for in a spouse. You need to know how serious marriage is, how much of a commitment it is, what is expected of you from God as a spouse. If you're divorced, Here's why you need this text. The ideal situation didn't work out for you. The marriage didn't last. Dear friend, this text ultimately points you to another marriage that will last forever. The bride of Christ to her bridegroom. If you're widowed, here's why you need this text. You, you may miss the privileges you find in this passage. You mistreating your husband in that gospel-centered way. Your wife in that gospel-centered manner. But what you miss is merely a shadow. Everything you miss about marriage will be fulfilled and surpassed because that marriage was a mere shadow to the ultimate one. If you're single and God has called you to remain single, to remain single, unmarried, rejoice that you're not distracted by all of this. 
and serve God unencumbered. Now finally, children. Why do you need this text? You will learn what marriage should look like. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Not a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. Not a man and an animal, or a woman and an animal. Not a man and three women. God's divine design for marriage is one man and one woman. Friends may tell you differently. Textbooks in school may tell you differently. But you need to rely on what God says. So let's begin unpacking this. Christian instruction for the wife. First, let's look at the actions of a holy wife. What are the actions of a holy wife? Notice verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject, or you could say submit, be subject to your own husbands. Let's stop there. Notice the first word, likewise. Likewise what? What, what is this word looking back to? Well, we're in the middle of a section of Scripture that centers around submission. Citizens submit to civil government. Employees submit to employers. Now, wives submit to husbands. This section is sometimes called the house codes. And notice that the weaker member is always addressed. It's bottom-up instruction. This is for citizens to obey, for employees to obey, for wives to obey. This is, this is bottom-up. It's not meant to be top-down. It's not meant for the government to use these verses to force us into submission or for employers to use this, these verses to force employees into submission or for husbands to use these verses to force wives into submission. We have this bottom-up instruction because all these local churches being addressed held a vulnerable place in society. And God is giving instruction to the vulnerable. Peter is writing to Christian wives in these local churches scattered throughout Turkey. And he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. The verb for these husbands not obeying the word can be understood as these husbands not obeying the gospel. They are not Christians. They are unpersuaded by Christ. They are rejectors of the gospel. And apparently, the wife's conversion has disrupted the family order. Plutarch, a historian who lived in the first century, said that the wife must worship and acknowledge only the gods of her husband. And the very fact that a woman would adopt any religion other than her husband's violated the Greco-Roman ideal. Peter does not tell these ladies to leave their husbands. A lack of faith does not seem to be a reason for divorce. He tells these ladies to win their husbands without a word. He wants them to preach a lot of wordless sermons. She's spoken to him before about the gospel because it says he disobeyed the word. Now, preach with your conduct. Verses 1 and 2 are instruction on how to win a lost spouse to Jesus Christ. And some of you have been praying for decades that God would remove his heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, 
The verb see is not referring to a casual glance. It refers to making careful observation. Peter's point here is that the wife's godly behavior is the most valuable testimony to open the husband's heart to the gospel. And a wife may say to Peter, well, Peter, I've made him watch Fireproof 26 times. I've bought him every John MacArthur book. Every Sunday I ask him if he's coming with me to church. Peter says, refrain, refrain from badgering your husband and put before him a holy life. The famous Augustine, the fourth century theologian and church leader, wrote about his mother Monica spending years praying and working toward her husband's salvation. And he had a journal, he called it Confessions, he had a journal and he, and he wrote this journal to God. And in this journal, he said, and I quote, she served her husband and did all she could to win him for you. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when my father was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. He was converted. Now, I want to add a little uh, caveat here. A few have tried to say that this means wives should sh submit to their unconverted husbands, but this is not for wives with converted husbands. Well, well that's wrong. We have the same instruction given in other places in Scripture. Here, Peter is simply taking the hardest case and he's using it as an example. So let's talk about what submission is and what submission is not. And I'm going to take a bit of a parenthesis here and then we will jump back in the text. Submission is not blind obedience. And any man who believes submission is blind obedience is himself blind. Wives, submission does not mean leaving your brain at the altar. It's not your husband thinking for you. It does not mean you must always agree and never present an opposing view. Submission does not mean that a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. If your husband asks you to abandon your faith, you do not do it. If your husband asks you to do something that is unbiblical, unethical, immoral, or illegal, you do not do it. Submission does not mean that if he's unfaithful to you that you do not have biblical recourse. Submission is not blind obedience. Secondly, submission is not enduring physical abuse. If you're listening to me and, and your husband is physically abusing you and you're hiding the bruises the best you can, let me encourage you to call the police and then let us as your shepherds provide you with help provision, and counsel. Biblical submission is not domination or oppression. That may be how other religions of the world treat women, but that isn't how Christianity does. John Piper spoke about one couple coming into his office, and she said, he makes me get permission before I go to the bathroom. John dealt with that in a much different way than I would have. Where you are a sick human being, and not only is that not biblical submission, God condemns that sicko controlling behavior. Submission does not mean being fearful and timid and cowering before your husband. A man that hits his wife 
And some of you have had to deal with the horror of domestic abuse. Such a man belongs in jail where he cannot beat up on women. God does not subject a woman to submit to physical or sexual violence or to use the language of the text, respectful conduct demands that you remove yourself. Submission is not blind obedience. Submission is not enduring physical abuse. Submission is not submitting to every man. The text does not call you to submit to someone else's husband, but your own. Submission is not receiving all of her spiritual strength through her husband. In the text, he's not a Christian. She's been going to corporate worship gatherings without him, studying scholars without him, reading daily without him, growing without him, praying without him. Next, submission is not based on women being less intelligent or competent. Submission does not mean that a wife is inferior to her husband. She is not a lesser being. In fact, that's downright denied later in verse 7. The world sees submission as second class, inferior, no initiative, no backbone, unassertive, cowering, non-resistant, compliant. But scripture sees submission as loyalty, helpfulness, faithfulness, adaptability, deferential, completing, assisting. It does not imply inferior personhood or lesser importance. That's what submission is not. Now let's talk about what submission is. Submission is beautiful. Wives, submit to your husbands. (laughs) Cue the giant eye roll. The, The groaning about submission from modern skeptics is that it always leads to abuse. The modern reader recoils at the antiquated instruction. Does this instruction come from the Neanderthal times? Our our culture teaches us that the idea of submission is archaic at best and tantamount to slavery at worst. They try to make a woman think that applying this principle will end up being a setback to women everywhere. Even in many Modern evangelical churches, they bristle with suspicion and even anger at the thought of submission. The cultural engineers that dominate the media, of our, that dominate the media and our education system, from preschools to the university, teach that submission is ugly. And God says, it's beautiful. One pastor rightly pointed out, a husband sacrificially loving his wife And a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world would never look at and say, how disgusting and archaic. In fact, a lot of people who say they are turned off by the Christian teaching of headship within marriage are attracted by the Christian marriages they see. Submission is beautiful. Submission is rooted in the Trinity. Submission is not a dirty word. Your submission to your husband is rooted in Jesus' submission to the Father. Contrary to popular misconceptions, there is no inferiority in submissiveness. We see that plainly in the Trinity. Jesus submitted to the Father. He's He's not inferior to the Father. In fact, this is everywhere in the Trinity. 
There is only one God and he exists in three persons. Each person is equally God. Yet the Son submits to the Father, 1 Corinthians 11. The Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, John 15. All equally divine, yet two are submissive. In the economy of redemption, the Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. It cannot be in essence or worth, so it must be in function. We can have equal worth, but different roles. Women and men, both equally made in the image of God, equally valued, yet with different roles in the marriage. Jesus had no loss of dignity submitting to the Father. And you have no loss of dignity submitting to your husband. Submission is beautiful. Submission is rooted in the Trinity. Thirdly, submission is God's, not Satan's. I could say it like this. Submission is not the result of the fall. When God created man and woman, they were both equally in God's image, yet had different roles in governing the creation and filling it with image bearers. Submission has to do with order and authority, not evaluation. There's nothing degrading about accepting God's order. God designed male and female relationships to be a beautiful dance where the man leads and the woman follows. There was submission in the garden before sin entered into the garden. Again, I want to go to Piper here. Piper put it well when he wrote this. When sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage. When sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not because it brought headship and submission into existence, but because it twisted them. It twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination or lazy indifference. And it twisted women's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative deference or brazen insubordination. End quote. After the fall, the sinful proclivity of man would be me dictator, you doormat. After the fall, the sinful proclivity of women would be a refusal to submit to the husband. The Genesis curse, you will want to control your husband and he will want to dominate you. These are now sinful dispositions towards submission. But understand, submission is not the result of the fall. You will see that Peter tackles man's sinful inclinations head on in verse 7, just like he does here with the women. Male domination is a result of the curse, not creation. Submission is beautiful. Submission is rooted in the Trinity. Submission is God's, not Satan's. Submission is hard. And all the ladies said, amen. My wife often says submission was so anti her culture in Canada growing up. Women just led the home. Listen, submission is not just hard for Canadian women. It's hard for all women. Submission is not just difficult because of your particular personality. It's difficult because of sin. Submission implies disagreement. It's not submission if it's always agreement. Submission is the disposition to yield to the husband's guidance. She, she expects him to lead and does not chafe under the burden of following. She understands that submission does not undermine her dignity, but expresses it. 
Biblical submission has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Next, submission is voluntary. Remember, this is bottom-up instruction, not top-down. Men, it's her verse, not yours. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this means you shouldn't quote it at your wife. It's hers. I mean, you are really stupid if you do that. It's, it's hers to give, not yours to demand. If she's not doing it, all you can do is be the kind of leader it would be a joy to submit to. You play your role and trust God with hers. Next, submission is you trusting Christ's command, not your husband's ability. You say, well, the guy that I'm married to doesn't deserve my submission. That's not the point. Peter is not teaching the inerrancy of husbands here. Submission is not rooted in who your husband is or how responsible he is. It's not rooted in whether or not your husband is a believer. Submission is rooted in God's good and wise order. And it has nothing to do with whether your husband brought you flowers or regularly praises you. It has to do with Jesus' command. Your husband may not deserve your submission, but Jesus does. Submission is not about what women can or can't do, but about what men are called to do. Wives affirm and encourage the husband's leadership because they love Jesus more than him. Finally, uh, submission is under attack. Biblical submission is under attack. And you know this from both ends. Uh, some men have used the teaching of submission for their own evil purposes. And they will be judged for it. And some will go to hell for it. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach the legitimate truth of submission from Scripture. Men will distort Jesus' teaching. He told us this. I want to give you a, uh, I want to give you a resource. John, John Piper and Wayne Grudem have a book entitled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, feel free to um, check that out. I think it's like 500 pages, so an afternoon read for you. Let's move on. Christian instruction for the wife. First, actions of a holy wife then adornments of a holy wife. Notice verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Peter's culture, like our own, had an obsession with external adornment. Women were under enormous pressure to look beautiful. Women in the Roman Empire were captivated by the latest fashions of the day and competed with one another on dress and hairdos. They wore outlandish and provocative clothing. The phrase, putting on, speaks of gaudy, a gaudy display of jewelry. Ornate hairstyles were prevalent in the high society of the Roman world. This wasn't just pigtails. No, historians tell us that in the empire, there were as many hairstyles as there were honeybees. Hair was waved, curled, dyed, Sometimes jet black, sometimes auburn. Wigs were imported from Germany and as far away as India. These women possessed an obsessive, ostentatious attention to outward adornment. 
America did not invent glitz and glamour. Peter's telling these ladies in the churches not to get their source of beauty from outward adorning. Don't try to be faddish in the way that the pagans are faddish. The word adornment in the Greek is cosmos, where we get our word cosmetic. Now, now what is this text saying? Is it prohibiting you from styling your hair or getting it dyed? Is it prohibiting you from wearing shiny jewelry or lovely clothing? The early church fathers canned all aesthetics in women's dress because of this text. Some fundamentalists and Pentecostals have used this to forbid any clothing that isn't frumpy and any hairstyle that isn't straight and down to your knees. Churches in Romania have split over this text on whether a woman can wear her gold wedding ring in public. And although the Puritans didn't go this far, they did have some prohibitions from this text. And I think the Puritans were wrong. You may want to write this date down in history. I don't often disagree with the Puritans, but here I do. This passage is not attacking you if you're a hairdresser or making absolute prohibitions about braided hair. In fact, in the Greek, literally it says, do not adorn, do not adorn yourselves with braids or jewelry or clothes. So it says, don't wear clothes. Uh, but be careful here. Peter isn't forbidding anything. He's just prioritizing things. Verse four, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Adorn yourselves with a beauty that never perishes. The adornments, the cosmetics, the glitz and glamour of your culture are artificial and external. Peter says, I want you to adorn yourself with something that can't be washed off or seen hanging on a rack. Those adornments are perishable. They will not last. They will fade. They will go out of style. Adorn yourself with something that is imperishable. It can't fade. It doesn't go out of style. It can't be washed off. Cultivate an, an inner beauty. And this beauty is more than skin deep. Peter reminds these wives and every woman in the body of Christ with this truth. The true essence of feminine beauty is not found on a rack at Macy's. True beauty is not found hanging around your neck. It's found in your heart. What the world pursues with great obsession is temporary. What the Christian pursues with great passion is eternal. That's why you must spend more time grooming your faith than grooming your face. In order to cultivate this inner beauty, you have to spend more time looking into the mirror of God's word than the mirror in your bathroom. Do you have a superficial preoccupation with clothing? What do you want people to remember about you when you walk away? Your heels or your heart? Well, well I never leave home without makeup but you will leave without being in God's word? That's caring more about external appearances than internal. God says, my daughters, 
My daughters aren't characterized by earthly fashions here today and gone tomorrow. They are characterized by imperishable beauty. And dads, just a note here. It's very important for daddies to praise their daughters for inner loveliness. Spend your days beautifying the soul, not the body. Now, to clarify, Peter isn't telling Christian women to look unkept or unattractive. That's not his point. He's saying don't wear extravagant clothing for the sake of showing off. It's an appeal to modesty. And just a little pastor side note, this probably isn't going to bother you at all, but it just it, it irritates me to the moon and back. Why do some churches work so hard to put pretty people on the platform? Pretty people on the website. Like if we get more beautiful people to commend the gospel, more will get saved. Peter didn't tell these ladies with unsaved husbands, if you get prettier on the outside, I'm pretty much, that's a guarantee he's going to repent. No, you concentrate on the inside. Now, what does this inner beauty look like? Well, the text says it. It's, notice, it's gentle and quiet. Gentle. Not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding. An internal quality of gentleness affirms the husband's role as the leader in the home. Now, can a woman with a strong personality still have a quiet spirit? Yes. And a woman with an introverted personality can have a rebellious spirit. Quiet does not mean that a Christian wife is to be a mousy woman. No, quiet speaks of the quietness of peace as opposed to the loudness of war. It means being a calming presence, particularly when things are or could become warlike. And this inner beauty is precious to God. And by the way, ladies, I shouldn't leave this verse without pointing this out. Gentle and quiet aren't particularly feminine distinctives. Both terms were used to refer to Jesus Christ. Actions of a holy wife, adornments of a holy wife, now attitude of a holy wife. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. This attitude that Peter is commending is nothing new. It's not modern or contemporary. It's found throughout the Old Testament. Godly women throughout the ages have lived this type of life, submitting to their husbands and adorning themselves internally. There was Ruth, Esther, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, and many others. The imperfect tense indicates a continual or repeated action over a long period of time. They kept submitting themselves. They kept adorning their inner beauty. Now, now Peter is going to zero in on one particular lady in the Old Testament. Notice verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, I'm not sure I would have picked Sarah out of all the ladies in the Old Testament to choose. I'm not sure she's the best role model. I, I don't think of her as being particularly submissive. Besides that, Abraham wasn't a good husband. He abused submission in his marriage. He made Sarah pretend to be his sister, and the king took her into his harem. This is not the submission case I want to put before our church. But this is the one God puts before 
And why would he do that? Well, Peter is not pointing out submission out in, of the entirety of their marriage, like the whole submissiveness of their entire marriage. He, he's just one particular moment of submission where she called him Lord. That's what he's pointing out. Not, not the whole thing, because that was busted and messed up. But this one particular moment where she called him Lord. Now, of course, Lord is with a lowercase l, not an uppercase l. I like to imagine it with a British accent. My Lord. It, it was a polite way to address someone showing respect and reverence. She, she respected her husband, loved her husband, reverenced her husband. Eugene Peterson says it's a term of endearment, like my dear husband. Uh, Peter is alluding here to Genesis 18, 12, where the angel announced to Abraham that Sarah is going to have a child. And Sarah was listening in and started laughing. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, you're going to give us a child? She was 90 and he was 100. It's showing her in a default moment. She spoke of him with respect. The attitude of the Old Testament women was that they spoke of their men with respect. It was their default. They esteemed their husbands. And Peter now switches the word to a very uncomfortable one from submit or subject to the word obey. She obeyed Abraham. Now let's be clear. This is not the same as parent-child obedience. But you can't escape some form of obedience in the word submission. You just can't. I tried all week. I tried, but you can't. Jesus submitted to the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father. Wives submit to the husband. Wives obey the husband. It's not demeaning. John Frame, that strong theologian from, from Pittsburgh, says, and I quote, Her obedience to her husband is like the obedience of the church to Christ or the obedience of Christ himself to his heavenly Father, an obedience which engages all of her gifts, her creativity, and her thought. Verse 6. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. <laughs> Ladies, you are the daughter of Sarah. You do not fall prey to terror. Submission does not mean acting in fear because this woman is fearless. Now, non-Christian, you walked in here and are like, what in the world did I walk into? Let me just talk to you for a moment, non-Christian. If you don't like submission, you will have a hard time with the gospel because it calls you to repent of your sin and submit to Christ as Lord. So we have Christian instruction for the wife. Now, Christian instruction for the husband. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now remember, uh, we've been walking through these house codes, and these are all on the authority level, bottom up, not top down. There were governmental officials in the congregation, but Peter did not address them. He wrote only to the citizens. There were employers in the congregation, but Peter did not address them. He wrote only to the employees. There were husbands in the congregation, but Peter did not address them, only wives. Oh, wait. He is changing the entire pattern here. This is the only category where the leader is addressed. And he only addresses him briefly, but just as forcefully as any of the others. And now you might ask, why doesn't Peter give equal attention to the men? 
like he did the women. Do men have less to learn about marriage? Well, that'd be a big no. Do men have shorter attention spans? Possibly, possibly. You shouldn't view this like, wait a minute, women get six verses and men only one? You should view it like this, wow, wow. For Peter to break his entire writing pattern, he must want to correct something that he sees in these churched men. And so he gives them physical expectations. Verse 7, likewise husbands live with your wives. Now, this particular Greek word behind our English word live is only used one time in scripture. And it has a dual meaning. It means first to live under the same roof. It means secondly, sexual intercourse. Husbands must cherish their wives in the bond of intimacy. Now this was a foreign concept to the Greco-Roman culture where these churches were located. Husbands were generally uninterested in pleasing wives. They only had a category for wives pleasing them. Men, don't bring a view of sex from the world into your bedroom. Live with them implies much more than sharing the same address. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So there's physical expectations, and then he throws on them intellectual expectations. The average husband and wife talk to each other 37 minutes per week. Now, I don't know what it was in the Roman Empire, but that's what it is in the American Empire. And it's amazing that two people can live together for years and not really know each other. Ignorance is dangerous. Sometimes guys carelessly joke and give themselves excuses. They say things like, I don't understand women. Ha, ha, ha. You don't need to understand women. You need to understand your wife. Husbands are scientists with a narrow field of inquiry. This isn't necessarily talking about superficial understanding, surface things like her favorite ice cream flavor or her favorite color. Man, you should, you should understand her. Know her preferences. Know her weaknesses. Know what encourages her. Know her strengths, her desires, her goals and frustrations. You know a lot of things. You know batting averages. You know opening day for hunting. You never miss that. You know how to take apart and put together a motor. You know how to surpass your business competitors. You can know your wife. It's the burden of the husband to figure out his wife. The wife isn't given that command about the husband. To love your wife is really to understand her. And we usually say from Ephesians 5 that it's the husband's duty to love, but here it's also to understand Likewise, husbands, live with your wives. You're like, are you reading this verse again? It's like eight times. I've got it planned. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. We have physical expectations, we have intellectual expectations, and then we have emotional expectations. You are to honor your wife, to render her her dues, showing courtesy and respect You may not agree with her opinion, 
but you should respect it. Give her kind and affirming words, both in private and in public. Don't fill your marriage with criticism and conflict. Be positive and affirming to your wife. You show honor to her by recognizing she is, what's the text say? The weaker vessel. Now again, this is not derogatory or demeaning. Peter isn't diminishing the value of women. He's not saying women are weaker mentally. He's not saying women are weaker morally or spiritually. I think he's referring to physically. Physically. Generally speaking, most husbands can overpower their wives. Now, I've seen a few wives who can take their husbands. I have. Uh, all of my aunts in North Carolina, they can throw down. All right, two things here. First, never use your physical strength to intimidate your wife. That's wicked. Secondly, you are the protector of the weaker vessel. If there is danger, you step in front of your wife. In blunt terms, men, she's a different vessel. Don't treat your wife like one of the guys. She's not one of the guys. Joking with her is different than joking with the guys. So men, how are you handling this daily assignment of treating your wife like a valuable treasure? We know who the divine author is of our text, that's God. But who did he use? Who's the human author? Peter. Peter himself is a married man. And he obviously recognizes his wife as a valuable treasure. And I think he's probably thinking of her as he pens this. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Physical expectations, intellectual expectations, emotional expectations, finally, spiritual expectations. You are both spiritual beings trying to make a marriage in a fallen world. Though men have been given the place of leadership in the home, the wives are equal in spiritual privilege. They are joint heirs. And you need to understand that the gospel... The gospel elevated women to an entirely new level that they had never seen before. Anyone who tells you that Christianity has held women down doesn't know their history. Women were treated poorly in the first century and in the Roman Empire. Jesus elevated women. Christianity says women will reign with Christ. He continues, so that your prayers may not be hindered. God says, if, if, you don't treat your wife this way, your prayers will not be answered. I'll block them. Peter teaches that men whose authority runs roughshod over their women, even if it's with society's full approval, they will not be heard of God. Don't abuse your headship. You yell at your wife? That's God's daughter. You're verbally abusing God's daughter. God says, don't think I left my daughter defenseless. Men, you, if, you're use, if you've used your position of power in marriage to serve yourself and not your wife, why would you think God would use his position of power to serve you? By the way, this is a form of heavenly discipline, not answering prayers. If, if my Everly gets married 
And her husband comes up to me and he says, I want to honor your daughter by doing this and this. Will you help me? I'm going to say yes. Yes, I will. I want to honor my daughter. I want her to be honored. It's, it's in my fatherly heart. But if he comes up to me and he says, I want to ignore, demean, and bully your daughter, will you help me with this? The answer is no. The answer is I will kill you and bury you in my backyard. And when they come looking for your body, I'll show them where I buried it. I'll go to prison in Jesus' name. God is a protective father over his daughters. And I want to remind you that Jesus never abused, never tyrannized, never exploited, never belittled his bride. So be like Jesus. Now four applications. Four applications. Application number one. Husbands, lead your home. I do receive pushback on the biblical teaching of submission. But it's surprising to me that most of the time it's from men. It's just too much responsibility for them. They've never led their home one day in their life. So husbands, I'm going to be pointed with you. Some of you need to grow out of adolescence. Dr. Peter Carl wrote in the South China Post. He said, what a real man needs is another man to talk to him and reinforce his maleness and help him be a better husband. Without such a friend, men risk reverting to a mother-child relationship with a spouse. Men become helpless and insecure and increasingly revert to the classic overgrown kid who expects to be mothered. End quote. Your wife is not your mother. You need to lead and love your wife. It's time to buck up, cowboy. Video game playing is over. It's time to do in your home what God expects for you to do. And you say, well, Kyle, Kyle, I can't lead my home. My wife is better than me at everything. Competency doesn't matter. She may have more intelligence than you. She may be funnier than you, more socially savvy than you. Smarter women are happy to have less intelligent husbands lead in the home. Just look around. (laughs) Well, Kyle, my wife knows the Bible more than I do. That's okay. She may have more time. She may have had a better start. You still lead. Can you grab a Bible? Yeah. Can you ask her or a child to read 10 verses? Yeah. Can you read 10 verses? Yeah. Can you say to God, thank you for what we read? Yeah. Do it. Your more intelligent wife, more friendly and outgoing wife is longing for you to lead your home spiritually. Application number two. Wives, Obeying this passage will always be a battle for you. You will win some and lose some. Just make sure there's progress. If you're not in the word every day, you will struggle to submit to your husband. In a decision-making progress process, talk about it. If you disagree, pray about it. Still can't come to a consensus? The husband decides. If you submit only when it's to your advantage, 
That's not submission. Make your reasons known and then trust God with the decision. Your husband will face God for that decision, not you. Unless you overpower him. Now, what I'm about to tell you is probably not theologically correct, but it's, but it's funny. That's, that's what you want to hear your pastor say, right? What I'm about to say is probably not theologically correct, but it's funny. Submission is telling a woman to duck so God can punch the man. Submission is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man. Ladies, maybe you had a domineering dad and you determined that your husband would not do that to you. So you dominate your husband. Constantly emasculating him. I think we're missing it. I think, I think our Christian books on marriage are, are missing it. I, I, I see them in bookstores. I see them in different places. I just I puke in my mouth. It's disgusting. Most Christian books on marriage now are all needs motivated. He needs respect. You need love. He needs sex. You need attention. It's all needs-based. You have to get beyond mere needs and submit to theology. This week, uh, many of our members wrote me about this passage. And it, it was one of the most wonderful joys I've ever experienced as a pastor. Reading how this is being worked out in your homes in such a beautifully Christ-honoring way. Ladies, God didn't ask of you anything he wasn't willing to do himself. And in a passage like this, wives can leave and be like, wow, that was, that was intense. I look forward to hearing that again next year when I, when I visit. Um, I want to make sure you do not leave discouraged, but you leave encouraged. And I think this is the way to do it. Jesus submitted perfectly because he knew you wouldn't. You must always remember that your salvation rests on his perfect submission, not yours. Now, you may want to take your phone out for these next two applications. Um, you'll want to take a picture of these slides. Um, or I can go through them and it'll take me another hour. But let's just, if you take a picture, you listen fast, I'll speak fast. Application number three. This is for married couples. Talk through these questions tonight. Talk through these questions tonight. Put the kids down. If you have children, talk through these questions tonight. Question number one. What's one thing you want to start doing or stop doing because of today's text? Question number two. Is there any way you feel like I am not submitting? This is a question for the wife to ask and the husband to answer. Is there one thing I can implement to help me lead our home better? This is a question for the husband to ask and the wife to answer. Question four, do you ever question if I respect you? I see some of you uh, writing ferociously. Um, we'll, we'll put this up at the end of service as well. What makes you feel honored? Am I placing too much emphasis on my external adornment? Am I praising your internal adornment enough? You got to talk more than 37 minutes a week. And it'd be helpful to talk with the Bible open. Application number four. This is the last one. Church, 
This passage, we've got the application at the bottom. Application four. Church, this passage along with other passages are why we are complementarians. One of our men in the church made this, made this chart. I'm not going to walk through this chart word by word, but, but take a picture of it and, and go, of, go over it later. It's complementarianism versus egalitarianism. And it shows you the difference. Typically, you have two sides throwing bombs at one another. Uh, this is just um, a sincere, legit difference between the two. When we do premarital counseling here, we don't have an egalitarian track and a complementarian track. In 11 weeks, we are offering a class entitled Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. That's complementarian. When we see submission in the Bible, we see Jesus submitting to his parents, Luke 2. Demons submitting to the disciples, Luke 10. Uh, citizens submitting to government, our passage here. The universe submitting to Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1. Christ submitting to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15. Church members submitting to elders, 1 Corinthians 16. Servants submitting to masters, our passage here. None of these relationships are ever reversed. That is, husbands are never told to be subject, the Greek word, hupotasso. Husbands are never to be subject to wives nor government to citizens, nor masters to servants, nor disciples to, to demons, nor parents to children. Now, agreeing on complementarianism is not essential to the gospel. However, that does not mean it's unimportant. You can find people who will explain away what Peter says here. Why he doesn't really mean what he says. Say things like, this text has been controlled by seemingly incurable chauvinism that has held captive the minds of scholars since the first century. They may discredit these texts to be cultural. And I, I just, I just want to leave saying this. May we hold fast to God's very unpopular word. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.